You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, when I was in college, a few different times I went to a conference called Passion, which is a great conference, so this is not necessarily a critique of the conference, but in fact, actually the first um, real sermon I heard about communion was Beth Moore teaching on the Psalm of 116 that Jesus sang at the Last Supper, and it was actually very, very mind-blowing. But one of the main emphasis during the conference was the very targeted focus on ending slavery around the world. There were, potentially still are, 27 million people enslaved in some form or fashion, and their hope was to end slavery through financing legal aid, through raids, through advocacy and support, etc. And every year during the conference, they would have a video where a Navy SEAL would have this GoPro strapped to his helmet. They would storm into a known place where there were trapped boys and girls, imprison those who were in charge, free those who were in bondage. This is a great thing. Justice is being served. People are being set free. But every year, every year, I walked away from that conference with this like nagging notion. I am not raiding brothels. I am not prosecuting masterminds. I am not counseling abused women. So if my work doesn't address, directly address some type of serious moral issue, does it matter? <clears throat> What is the significance of my menial job? And at the time, I was working at the Daily Beacon, which was a student paper that ran on campus. And I did enjoy it. And yet there was an unhealthy guilt that lingered over me. Like, does reporting on the food quality in presidential court have any actual significance? Uh, Does Jesus care about that? Do I care about that? Does good journalism matter? We're going through this series on our vocation, our calling, and today I want to spend some time speaking directly to the idea of your job, your actual work. What is work? Is it all equal? Does it all matter? Tim Keller describes work this way, which is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So we want to talk about the what of work, the how of work, and the end of work. So this is what we read in Genesis 1. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given you, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. The first thing to recognize is that God blessed them, which means that before the fall, he blessed procreation. And he blessed work. The multiplication of the family and the creativity of taking something and creating something from that thing. God blesses that. Now, fill the earth is a pretty large category. And here's what falls under it. Adam and Eve taking their family and growing it into a society. Fill the earth implies schools, community centers, restaurants, boutiques, even countries. 
And subdue it implies taking the raw materials of the earth and seeing its potential and doing something with it. So plant crops, build homes, invent solar power, design tech, create sport. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now in Genesis, there are two accounts of creation, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. And you will see that in Genesis 2, it says this, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. So what does he do? He forms man from the dust of the ground and takes man and puts him in a garden to work it and care for it. To work. I'm going to end this. Abad is the Hebrew word for work. It is mostly translated Service in English, and it makes sense. Work is service to God and to one another, even to the earth. But abad is also the same word used all over the Hebrew Bible for worship. So work and worship are not separate ideas. They're actually connected. Two translations of the same word. It's not that your work matters. It's that it's a form of worship. It is an offering to God. This is yours. And one of the through lines of the scripture that is really hard for some of us to conceive because we treat God as more employer than we do anything else is that we actually partner with God. We co-rule or co-heir. We are actively partnering with God to take the world somewhere. So from the beginning of the story until now, God has been looking for partners. Consider this, God could have made all humans from dust, just like he did with Adam, but he chose to partner with them instead and work through marriage and family. God could have made food fall from the sky like he did with the manna in Exodus, but instead he chose to partner with people through farming and agriculture. He could have put Adam and Eve into a city, but instead he chose to put them in a garden and gave them a shot at starting civilization from ground zero. God could have made people around the world free in an instant, just like he did with the Israelites and the ten plagues. Instead, he chooses to partner with people through advocacy and legal representation, and you can go on and on and on. God is looking for partners. We are the hands of God, which means when we ask for daily bread, God grants it through bakers and grocers. And when we pray for clothing and shelter, God grants it through cotton farmers and construction workers. God is not a cosmic genie granting wishes. He is the omniscient creator who both creates us and partners with us as we become more like him in our work. And as I was preparing this, I came across something very fascinating. The first time in the entire Bible that we read the phrase filled with the Spirit of God, which is something that's all throughout the Bible, it is in the book of Exodus and it is highlighting an artist. It is not a priest. It is not a prophet. It is not a king. It's not a pastor. It's an artist. See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, from the tribe of Judah. Uri was a son of Hur. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. 
the first person noted in the scriptures that is filled with the Spirit is an artist. School teachers and nurses and architects and business owners and stay-at-home parents are not relegated to second-tier jobs. They are filled with the Spirit of the living God that infuses their work. The first man and woman were gardeners and zoologists and majored in horticulture. God came and lived among us chopping wood. What you do inherently matters. This is what the scriptures call the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Martin Luther King Jr. said, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, Here lived a great Street sweeper. Your work has great dignity. And most of the scriptures are filled with people doing common jobs in common spaces amongst common folk. Where you are, be there and do that and receive the love of God in the literal remaking of the world. And as an aside, that person is not a Christian street sweeper. They're just a street sweeper. You are not a Christian business owner or a Christian scientist or a Christian salesman or a Christian doctor because Christian is not an adjective. It is a noun. This might sound strange, but there is no such thing, categorically speaking, as a Christian school or a Christian coffee shop or a Christian boutique because the Spirit of God does not fill businesses. He fills people. Businesses are not adopted into the kingdom. Children are. Schools are not brought from death to life. People are. And so your job is not to be a Christian doctor as opposed to a non-Christian doctor. Your job is to be a doctor who loves Jesus and loves her patients and works and goes about her job because God cares about the work and because work is a form of worship. Dorothy Sayers highlights this point when she says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Fill the earth and subdue it. To continue playing on the role of doctor for a minute, Besides bed, bedside disposition, proper knowledge of meds, a careful hand in surgery, that matters. It inherently matters to the person who's being worked on. And as someone practicing medicine, it is a way to love your neighbor. Fair wages as an owner of a business, communicating classroom expectations as a teacher, all of these are ways in which to worship and love our neighbor. The what of your work is very important. Now, there are a few things to say here. Not all work is created equal. There are plenty of jobs that are not dignifying. 
that do not bring flourishing to the world. The IT guy running code for Pornhub and making good money doing it is not working a dignifying job. In fact, it is a destructive job both to him, the people on the camera, and the viewer. The owner of the title loan stores that know free cash sounds really enticing to people that are strapped for money and fail to inform the person that the interest rate is 50% of what they're borrowing and they are likely to never pay it back and will be forever in debt to the store on the corner. That is not dignifying work. It does not add value to our community. It does not add value to the person working. There are certain jobs and certain occupations that are in fact not honoring to the Lord. Also, not all people doing all kinds of work is created equal. Courtrooms have various people doing various jobs. Two people in a courtroom are a judge and a court stenographer. Someone who's hearing the case and making a ruling is the judge, and someone writing down all that is said and done is the stenographer. Both jobs can be equally honoring to God. But suppose the finest judge in the country also wanted to type. Would it please the Lord if they gave up their judicial duties so they could enhance their typing skills? Maybe they say something like the pressure of hearing each case is so intense. Or by merely being a stenographer, I will learn humility. And we might respond with something like, I wonder if this person has the temperament to be a judge. That might be a very rational response. But given their wisdom and skill and legal background, we might also say, go get some counseling and work a more humane schedule to reduce stress, but God has entrusted talents to you and lives are at stake. Now, there are many less judges in the world than stenographers and a whole lot less qualified people to be a judge. And so if a judge can judge, they should. Every calling that God gives people is honorable, but not all people have the same capacity to do strategic work. Many can type, only a handful can judge. Many can clean scalpels, only a handful can do surgery with them. Therefore, this person would please God the most when they use their rarefied training and experience for good. Your work matters because your work is worship and is honoring to the Lord. Secondly, the how of work. We need new eyes to see. Consider a truck driver. They might say, I just deliver stuff. I don't make anything. But they just need a wider perspective. Suppose they deliver food. Where would consumers be without the trains and trucks that that distribute food? Will they drive themselves to Kansas to buy a cow, to Idaho for potatoes, and to Minnesota for wheat? If we reflect, we realize that everyone in the chain of production contributes to the food supply, and furthermore, no human being actually grows food. Suppliers sell seeds, fertilizer, and equipment. Farmers work the ground, plant seeds, and harvest the crops. But God sends the sun and the rain to kiss sleeping seeds awake. Humans can enhance productivity in many ways, but God created plant life and providentially orders the conditions that unleash their growth. And after the harvest, food processors, packagers, truck drivers, stock boys, cashiers have their respective roles. 
The cashier seems as marginal as the driver, but remember, consumers need to acquire their food somewhere. So cashiers either take the money or tend machines that transfer money, so the cashier has a vital role. Besides, they're the last person the buyer sees, so they can help an unpleasant shopping trip end well. He or she fosters customers' loyalty by caring for clients. In that way, they love people at their job. The math teacher doesn't know that her former algebra student is now an engineer who designed the efficient bridge she crosses on the way to work. The art teacher doesn't know that his former student sketched a new building he admires daily as he passes by it. Your work is a contribution to the world and your work is an opportunity to partner with the Spirit in taking the world somewhere. The question is, do you actually have eyes to see that? Again, Dorothy Sayers says, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction in the medium in which he offers himself to God. The medium in which he offers himself to God. Is that how you view your job? Do you walk into the office every day and consider your email exchange, your weekly one-on-ones, the kids you watch over, the patient you're tending to, or the project you're managing as a way to offer yourself to God? What might it look like to walk into your office wherever it is? Just this week and every day, pray this prayer, Jesus, this is not mine, this is yours. I am privileged to partner with you in this job, this ordinary, mundane, seemingly menial, and very important work that you have called me to do. How we go about our work matters. And I'm not suggesting every day you're going to have some kind of epiphany at work or each day is going to be equally satisfying. I'm saying that our approach to work is to receive the invitation that God is doing something more in us as we work than we are willing to witness and that we are actually responding to God in our work. Over time, that will fundamentally alter how you go about your day-to-day responsibilities. It can't not. And then there is the end of work. In Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the Hebrew language, there's something very important. It's called order. The order of things in a sentence is extremely important. What comes first, beauty or utility? It's important that the way this sentence reads is that the tree is not merely for food. It is for beauty. Pleasing to the eye is not about utility. It's not about usefulness. It's about wonder. It's about joy. A few years ago, we bought a kitchen table. Some of you know the story, but Sarah happened to wander into Midmock Collective and stumble across this very wild table. This table is made of teak wood. It's got two leaves in it. You can fit 12 people around it. And someone went out to the forest over 60 years ago and forested that wood. And someone else transported that wood from the forest to the warehouse. And someone else took that wood and then reimagined how it could be used into a comfortable, beautiful table where there are no screws and no hinges and the entire table leg is one smooth piece of artwork as are the chairs. 
And someone else housed the place where the carpenter would work and make the conditions spacious enough where one could have an entire shop dedicated to woodworking. And then an older couple would buy that table and for 50 years they would use it for potlucks and prayer and family dinners and holiday gatherings and neighborhood get-togethers. It was Martha who would steward her role in her family and that table was the centerpiece of her job. And over time, the couple was downsizing their home, so they sold it to a store that exists to refurbish and remake mid-century modern furniture and to do it extraordinarily carefully by hand. And then a couple 20-year-old boys who worked there who had really honed their craft at such a young age worked to restore and refinish and remake the table in such a way that it literally looks as good as new. And then this past Sunday, we placed food on that table and people that people had worked and created and made so that it might be enjoyed. And we sat around the table and shared about the toil and the challenge of our vocations where God has us in this moment and what might he be inviting us into. All of that, all of that is meaningful work. All of it says something about God. All of it reflects the beauty and the wonder of the Creator God. The table is a daily reminder to me that work is inherently beautiful, and we were made for it. And in many ways, the work of that table, or the work of the winemaker, or the work that's put into the lab, or the work of child-rearing, all of it finds its climax in the glory of God. We use the phrase glory of God almost in a second nature type way. It's an often cited phrase. I'm not sure we know what it means. In Hebrew, the word is kavod. It means weight or heavy. There is something awe-inspiring. It evokes a type, of, a type of importance, a type of significance, a type of wonder. And typically, it implies two things, beauty and presence. The presence of God was in the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And when people saw God's glory, his significance, his importance, they would worship him. He is good and his love endures forever. He is perfect. He is beautiful. So it's his manifest presence and it's his staggering goodness. It's his beauty. And we all have spaces or things or uh, different types of conversations even that witness to the glory of God, that bring us into the presence and the beauty of God. And that is not different in work. I will never forget the first time I saw a Broadway show uh, was Wicked when I was in high school. And right before intermission, if you know it, they played Defying Gravity. It's this like amazing theatrical thing. They lift the witch in the sky. Everyone's like, you know, just going ballistic, right? And as someone who was just dipping their foot into theater, I was like, pretty amazing. This is pretty incredible. Um, but 10 years later, I would see Wicked a second time. And this time was very unlike the first time. Early on in the play, there's a song Elphaba sings called The Wizard and I. And I rewatched it this, uh, this week. For six and a half minutes, she is on stage by herself singing a solo. And if you know anything about theater, you know that being on stage for six minutes with one main character holding the audience is a fool's errand. It is an impossible task. And yet she did it flawlessly and the entire auditorium in the Dayton Center gave her a standing ovation. It was someone who had worked tirelessly at their craft and the audience was enthralled. There was joy, there was enthusiasm and the realization that someone had so tapped into the emotions just by her voice and facial impressions 
that captivated a thousand people. And I said to the folks sitting with me, I believe we just got a glimpse of glory. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the beauty and the presence of God might be made known through the day in, day out grind of a theater play to the ordinary work of changing diapers and doing dishes. Work so that the beauty and the presence of God might be experienced. So people might be caught up in a vision that is bigger than themselves. I think a lot of music. It is nearly impossible to talk about music in an intellectual capacity and skip over Johannes Sebastian Bach. Now, so much of Bach's music did not have lyrics to it. It was just wildly good music. It was not inherently Christian music, but it draws you in. And you don't have to enjoy classical music to appreciate the finesse and mastery that is his work. The Hungarian composer Georg Kurtog spoke like this. Consciously, I am certainly an atheist, but I don't say it out loud because if I look at Bob, I cannot be an atheist. Then I have to accept the way he believed. What if that were said to us about the way we work and about the work we do? That those around us do not hold, who do not hold to the same vision of life as we do, but cannot help but be enticed by the way we work. The best parents point to the father who isn't lazy but actively pursues. The best bosses point to the king that doesn't intimidate but serve. The best employees point to the carpenter that proves God fills common labor with uncommon purpose. And the best creations point to the creator to which all beauty blossoms from. And there are days where mundanity hits for sure. In fact, those are probably most of our days. And there are days where you will question, does it matter? Is it worth it? What's the end goal here? And I will just leave you with what N.T. Wright says. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are strange, though it may seem, almost hard to believe as the resurrection itself. Accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, Gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or work, every act of care and nurture of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. God is looking for partners. And work happened before sin happened. 
and it will continue when sin is gone. We will still work. The ground will not have toil, and yet we will still find joy, and we will still find purpose in doing good work. So the opportunity is to foreshadow a coming kingdom to a current city. And for most of us, it's foreshadowing a coming kingdom to a current classroom or a current office or a current home. That is the invitation. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, who fills all of our work and who fills us so that we might do good work and we might do it with a level of intentionality and thoughtfulness and purpose that you have called us to. It matters to you because it's worship to you. And it matters to you because it is a way to tangibly, physically, and every day love our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? It is our office mate and our student and our patient and our child. It is our employer. It is the person on our team who gets on our nerves. Lord, you give us an opportunity to partner with you in remaking the world. Let us not miss that as we re-engage our work tomorrow morning. But let it be infused with the gladness and goodness that you bring. You have showed us what it means to create. Now we, mere, we merely mirror you to your watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.